This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 11th, 2016, the Many People Are Saying edition. I'm Emily Bazelon. I'm here, well, not physically here, but spiritually here with two wonderful people, John Dickerson, the host of Face the Nation, the author of Whistle Stop. Hey, John. Hi, we'll see how wonderful I am. <laughs> Are you going to let that long a pause elapse? Every time I ask you anything yes. today, that's that could make the show really long. Oh, was there a long pause? <laughs> oh, I I thought I am I thought I responded right away. Maybe it's the fact that I'm all the way in San Francisco. There's a delay for the Pony Express to get the message out here. <laughs> all right, well, let's see how that goes. And we have a special guest joining us today, Kirsten Powers, who is a commentator at Fox and a columnist for USA Today, and is all by herself in our DC Hello. studio. Yes, Sorry, I'm holding down the fort here. We have three topics for you today, as usual. We are going to talk about Donald Trump. What a surprise. Our first topic will be about the Republican defections he's facing and why some of the steps he's trying to take to supposedly pull the party together, like the economic policy he discussed this week, doesn't seem to be mattering to the people who are leaving him. Our second topic is about how to apologize in today's political pl- climate. If you are Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or anyone else, and you've said something that maybe is a little regrettable or completely wrong and stupid, how do you walk it back? And then our third topic is a new piece in The Atlantic by Caitlin Flanagan on binge drinking in high school and college, which I'm sure will strike fear into the heart of many parents, including us, some of us, the parents and the non-parents among us. Then we will also have cocktail chatter and Slate Plus. And Slate Plus, we're going to quiz Kirsten on um, the backstory of her interview with Donald Trump in which he talked about his feelings about sexual harassment and his daughter Ivanka and just kind of how that all unfolded folded, how she pulled that off. All right. This is a week when Trump said on Monday, back on Monday, so many days ago, that he was going to reset his campaign with a speech about economic policy. And he gave that speech and he embraced a traditional Republican approach calling for tax cuts, um, the same kind of approach to taxes that the Republican House leadership has supported. So that seemed like he was walking the straight and narrow there for a minute. He threw in some anti-free trade platform, but, you know, he was on message about the taxes. And then 
all hell break, seemed to break loose anyway. We have Susan Collins, the senator from Maine, writing an op-ed announcing that she cannot vote for Donald Trump. Meg Whitman out in California said the same thing. 50 Republican foreign policy and national security experts have said that Trump would be the most reckless president in American history. And they're not going to vote for him. One of the reasons for all of this, if you can really tease out any reason, were Trump's controversial remarks this week in which he was talking about Hillary and how she will um, ruin the Supreme Court if she's elected. And then, of course, as I'm sure everyone knows, he said, well, if she gets to pick her judges, there's nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is. I don't know. I don't know either. So I don't really want to talk about what Trump meant there because I feel like I don't care. He said this weird oblique thing that might be sinister or might be innocent. Just the might be sinister is enough for me. But what I'm really wondering about this is what, like, is every, how can we have such a chaotic political situation with the presidential election when it is not even Labor Day yet? Like, what are we going to do in the fall when August has been so full of frenzy? And does the fact that it's still August mean that all this doesn't really matter that much, that these poll numbers that Trump is facing that seem like a real problem could change for him? Or are we at um, a place of kind of no return in, in terms of his slide? John, what do you think? That's a lot in there. Um, <laughs> well, I talked for so, too long. Uh, God. Yeah, you... <laughs> um, okay, where to begin? So I actually... Let me just break off a, a tiny little piece here and... Um, and then let's, and then we could bring the other stuff back in. I think the most significant development. No, 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 it's good. It's America. We're fine. Um, <laughs> so the thing that, that the 50 foreign policy experts and Susan Collins basically made the same case that this is not about, or this is not specifically about gaffes or uh, crazy things said from the stump. Although those things that are said are a, a symptom of their underlying critique, which was about Donald Trump's temperament and judgment to handle the job. From the very beginning, the Trump strategists have said he is a change candidate. The country wants a change candidate. And the only thing that will keep the country from picking Donald Trump will be if people feel like handing him the presidency is just too dangerous. People want change, uh, but they don't want to go over a cliff. And so that is the key strategic challenge for his campaign. And these comments and the behavior, but really the instinct behind it uh, and the impulses behind it are what has or is what's worrying Susan Collins and the foreign policy experts who basically say he's too dangerous to be president. And the number of people in our poll and the CBS poll, but consistently in polls, shows that the biggest worry people have about him is that he doesn't have the temperament and judgment for the job. And they are putting that first in the rank order of things they care about. They have many, many, many problems with Hillary Clinton. Uh, but at the moment, their desire for change and their fears about her are swamped by their fears about him. And I think that's what that's what we saw this week. And that's what each one of these gaffes or whatever we're going to call them, because they're not really gaffes anymore. Uh, they, they, in some sense, seem to be a strategy of his. And now the president is, he's talked about how the president is the founder of ISIS uh, and can, continues to say that. These all feed into that key. They've sort of focused down in a way that, that maybe wasn't the case before. Kirsten, what do you think about whether these poll numbers could come back? I mean, in some ways, it seems like Trump is being so self-destructive that I wonder if he just calmed down for a week or two. I guess maybe he'd have to do it more permanently. Would things turn around? Would people be willing to see him in a different light? 
Well, I think, first of all, I'm not sure that he's being self-destructive, sort of to what John said. I I have always had the theory of him that this is more strategic, that he's not doing these things by accident, that he says these things. Now, we can get into a lot of different theories about why he says them. Um, You know, does he say them because he thinks it's going to make his base happy? Or does he say them because he wants to change a conversation? Or does he say them because he just wants to be an entertainer and he thinks that people want to be entertained? And so he keeps people sort of entertained and sort of, you know, reporters sort of scurrying around chasing the last thing that he said. Yeah. Um, so I think he is probably, and I, mean, I think I'm in a minority on this, but I think he actually probably is capable of doing it. I, I don't, there are a lot of people who think he isn't, that he has impulse control issues. And I think it's more likely that he could do it if he wanted to do it. He just doesn't want to do it. Um, and on the poll numbers, I have to say, as somebody, you know, who I, I'm, I have a slightly different take on them. I think that his poll numbers should be um, a lot worse considering what's happened in the last week. You know, if you mm-hmm. look at him, um, the Bloomberg poll, Clinton's up six in the head to head between Clinton and Trump. And if you throw Johnson and Stein in, she's up four. Um, and with the NBC, Wall Street Journal, Maris poll, Clinton's up nine if you have Johnson and Stein in and up four if you, if it's a head to head. I mean, up four in a head to head after this last week. That, that's right. concerning to me. Uh, and so I think that um, there does seem to be this sort of core base of people who obviously aren't going to leave him. But the other side of it is the people coming out criticizing him, the foreign policy experts and the, the senators are part of the establishment. And the people who are supporting him don't like the establishment and they don't care what the establishment is saying. And they're just probably saying, oh, yeah, all the foreign policy people are coming out because they're all into war like Hillary Clinton is. You know, they don't. I don't know how much that moves sort of the kind of people who would already vote for Trump. Um, and Right. It, Turns out nobody cares about any of those people, yeah. and, which I include myself or all of us <laughs> in, that, in that category. Although I, I think over time, though, I mean, the one place in the Republican coalition where he's having the worst time, I mean, he's got his supporters. They definitely don't care about the foreign policy experts. In fact, it, I'm sure it helps him, but he's got to build his coalition bigger mm-hmm. or achieve right. such maximum turnout among that group that it, it that it requires the kind of organization he isn't building and his weakness with white college educated women mm-hmm. gets bigger and i think those those voters are the ones who i mean they might not know who bob zelick is but they i think they are the ones who could be affected by the accumulated defections you know because it's almost every day now and those suburban women who traditionally vote for republicans I think they they could be susceptible to messages from a more establishment parade away from Trump that is focused again on this s- sort of single issue, not just oh he's he's uh, you know sort of uh, says things that are a little rough. It's it's more a more dangerous critique. Right. I mean, I said self-destructive because of what you were just saying, John, that it seems like this is preventing him from building a broad enough coalition to win. But I have been wondering if he doesn't really care about that very much, if this has more to do with his brand and his feelings of being adored. And if, Mm -hmm. you know, 40% or 45% is still going to let him make a lot of money and come away famous and have dining out talking points forever. There, Yeah, there's a real question. Does he even care about becoming president? Or is this just the sort of the Donald Trump show? And he just and, and he does really feed off on going out in front of the of these crowds and, and saying these things and getting the reaction from them. And, you know, so what what's motivating him, I think, is the big question. That's a really good point about feeding off the crowds. Uh, Howard Dean 
in 2004, as he looked back on the Dean's scream, he said, you know, the problem for me was I would go out and give a policy speech and people would clap politely, but they wouldn't be excited. And he said, you know, I wanted to whip them up. I wanted to get that charge out of them, both for himself, but also to get the to get the voters whipped up and get them psyched for the election. And so if you give if you act presidential in your speeches, which is, you know, clearly Donald Trump, for him, the whole campaign is about the the those speeches and that reaction, which he gets both in the stadium, but also which he in, assumes he's getting even when he's on TV, when he says things that are like what he says at the stadiums, that kind of charge is personally affecting, but it's also sort of a turnout mechanism. And so uh, why we're likely to see it until no, the end of this race. How entertaining. How terrifying. Kirsten, how come Donald Trump is not running ads in swing states? Wouldn't it be time for him to start trying to lay down the groundwork for the negative messaging about Hillary that is surely coming our way? Yeah, I mean, you would think. But I, part of it, I think he is sort of famously cheap. He doesn't want to spend a lot of money. Um, and I think part of it is he thinks he doesn't need it. I, I don't think that that's correct, but he thinks he doesn't need it. He thinks that he can sort of get his message out through the free, you know, unearned or, you know, media where he can just use basically us to get his message out. He just doesn't think that he needs to do it. So what's the point of being cheap now that he's raised $80 million from these online donations? I mean, now you're, you're really asking me to go deep into the psychology of Donald Trump. I don't, you know, I really, I don't, I don't know, except to say, maybe, you know, I mean, that's perhaps they, they want to spend it on something else. I don't know. But uh, he doesn't, he, he clearly, at least at this point, I, I would assume at some point he would start doing it. But at this point, he clearly hasn't felt that he's needed to do it. Right. Can I go back and Kirsten get your take on the actual Second Amendment comment mm -hmm. that Trump made? Because it felt like to me... I, it feels a lot like an interpretation of that is sort of it depends on where you sit determines where you stand. So but I just I kind of wondered what your thought was about when you heard him say that what you thought. What I heard was that he was, I assume, making a bad joke about killing Hillary Clinton and, you know, that he meant to say it that way. And the people who are defending it, I think, are just taking what the Trump campaign put out, claiming that this was some attempt at unity. But it doesn't really make sense if you look at the actual quote, because he's not talking about voting. He's talking about if Hillary gets to pick her judges. Well, that means Hillary would be president. Um, right. And so, <laughs> exactly. so it's not some cry for unity and, and voter turnout. And I think he knows exactly what he was doing. And I mean, how many times are we going to say this? That he he's now crossed another line that nobody ever crosses to the point that you have the Secret Service having to allegedly, at least as reported, call him and for his campaign to talk about this. So to me, I think anybody who's defending this is just carrying water for the Trump campaign because it seems very clear what he was doing. John, do you want to add to that? Well, I felt like he was just being um, sort of messy. I mean, and and he doesn't care whether his messiness slops over into being an actual threat. In other words, he's not thinking, huh, I think if I say this, maybe it, it might cross a line. I think he doesn't care about the lines. Vox had an interesting piece that said basically where he goes wrong is when he panders to groups that he doesn't mm -hmm. normally, that he doesn't have a long relationship with. And so when he talks about the hot button issues and the conservative right, he he knows he needs to say things that he thinks will make that those audiences like him or or find approving. But because he's not been steeped in the language for years, he just kind of is 
like just throws out comments like that. Um, yeah, it comes off as a little clumsy, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it was clumsiness plus lack of interest in, you know, not or, or no worry about if I blow through this red light, it might, you know, some people might be scared because mm-hmm. I don't care. I blow through red lights. Yeah, um, the thing for me is also we all, yeah, it all depends on sort of where you're coming from and how you're looking at it. And I think, you know, for for a lot of people who are reporters, you also see, have a lot of familiarity with what a lot of his supporters are like. And I, I don't say all his supporters are like this. It may even just be a minority of them. But there is this this sort of part of his coalition that are very on the fringe and, you know, have done some th- pretty awful things, um, you know, and, and things that he, that Trump knows are his supporters that he's refused to disavow, whether it's, you know, vicious anti-Semitic attacks against reporters. Um, and so when you when you consider the type of people, the white supremacists who on their white supremacist websites are endorsing him and calling him dear leader and all this other stuff, knowing that those are his followers and then him saying something like this, it, it makes you think. It's not a leap to think that somebody could act on this. And if he misspoke, if you want to be absolutely generous and just say he misspoke, as we all do, then you would say, oh, my, of course not. Of course, I, that's not what I meant. And I would never say something like that. But of course, Donald Trump isn't going to do that. All right. That is the perfect segue to our second topic. How do you say you're sorry? How do you walk back a comment if you are Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton? This episode of The Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Trump was asked Thursday morning on CNBC whether his remarks about the Khan Gold Star family were a mistake. And he said, you'll have to define what mistake is. He's not someone for whom regret or apology is a natural pose. And then we also had a week in which Hillary Clinton, I thought, had a very clunky moment. She had claimed, of course, um, in an interview with Chris Wallace, that the director of the FBI, James Comey, had said that her answers in her FBI interview about her email server were, quote, truthful. That was, to be generous, not all of what James Comey said about Hillary Clinton's presentation about her email server. And so when Kristen Welker, a reporter at NBC, asked her about that truthfulness self-defense the other day, she said, 
I was pointing, this is Clinton talking, I was pointing out in both of those instances that Director Comey had said my answers in my FBI interview were truthful. That's really the bottom line here. And then she kind of made the point that she'd said that what she told the FBI was consistent with what she had told the American people. So then she kept going, quote, so I may have short-circuited, and for that I will try to clarify because I think Chris Wallace and I were probably talking past each other. Um, What really bugged me the most about all of this kind of mess was that's really the bottom line here. As if, again, what really matters is this claim of truthfulness, not all the other parts of what Comey said. I just wanted her to say I really blew it. I wanted her to just be like superhuman and regretful in that moment. And of course she didn't. Is that just a crazy fantasy on my part, Kirsten? I mean, is it impossible for Hillary Clinton to be that candid or is she just making a mistake in how she's presenting herself here? Well, I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to want somebody to do, not just because it's the right thing to do sort of more from a moral standpoint, but it also would benefit her, you know, politically if she just in the very beginning, frankly, would have just done that. Uh, I don't th- I don't right. think it would have gotten so out of control if she wouldn't have started saying things that weren't true. Uh, and there's um, nothing I mean, all politicians do this, but it is so irritating. And is the that's the bottom line here. Whenever they say that's the bottom line here, you can be certain that whatever they're calling the bottom line is not the bottom line. It's an identifier for where you should start to then go talk about what's actually really at issue. They're they're literally saying, uh, I am obfuscating or I'm... Um, trying to get past this question. And so it just send it just reanimates her problem um because what she's doing with Comey and the Comey testimony and the the word games she's playing are a real-time example of what people find terrifying. And this comes from a lot of conversations I've had with undecided voters, thanks to all of them who've written in, and people should do more of that. When they talk about what worries them about Donald Trump, it's that he might be, that he's too dangerous to be president. When they talk about Hillary Clinton, it's her trustworthiness. And this is sort of a real-time display of that. It's not something she did in the past. It's something she's doing right before people. People find it irritating when somebody right in front of them behaves in the in the way that that has already made them suspicious about them. Yeah, so I was reading up a little bit about apologies, thanks to our wonderful intern, Kevin Townsend. And he was, um, he sent us something that included a reference to a book by Aaron Lazar. Surely I'm saying his name wrong. It was the whole idea of the art of apology. And so one of the points is that timing is really crucial for apologies. You can't do it like, too quickly, but you also can't let a lot of time pass. So, I mean, Lazar is writing about personal relationships, but I feel like with Hillary Clinton, she's like way on the downside of having let too much time pass. And then I was also struck by this study from a few years ago in which they were talking about gender differences with apologies. And according to this study, there they found there was no gender difference in the proportion of offenses that prompted apologies. Men um, apologize less, but that's because they also think they're committing fewer offenses. They just don't think they're doing things wrong as much. Women tend to feel that they've made a mistake more often. I mean, I guess Hillary's like confounding that gender stereotype and maybe there's something we should honor about her doggedness her her the way she's being so stubborn about this i don't know i, I don't even believe that as i'm saying it kirsten yeah well think? i mean you have to also remember she did the same thing with the iraq war boat right she she just dragged it out and out and out and out and out until she finally had to basically capitulate 
Um, and you, you, that's the other frustrating thing about when you kind of know eventually they'll probably have to apologize uh, unless they're Donald, Donald right. Trump who doesn't really apologize. But most most people, most politicians will ultimately end up having to apologize. And so, you know, I'm not sure what the motivation is for her here, though. I, I, I still sort of think my theory is that it's probably a political calculation that, that she, whatever she thinks she's going to get for apologizing, it's, you know, she probably has calculated it's better to not apologize and not give that to her enemies and whatever upside you get from apologizing is too low. A a friend of mine just wrote a story for The Atlantic about basically saying that, you know, evangelicals who are supporting Trump need to apologize to Bill Clinton. And I had forgotten this. And he talks about how Bill Clinton actually apologized for what happened with Monica Lewinsky. And I went and I watched it. And he's talking to religious leaders. And he, you know, basically says, I wasn't contrite enough. I have sinned. I apologize to my friends, family, staff, cabinet members, Monica Lewinsky, her family, the American people. It's not, you know, to be forgiven. You need more than sorrow. You need to be repentant and so on and so on. And of course, it made absolutely no difference. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it doesn't made absolutely no difference in terms in of terms what? of the people who didn't like him. We're going to continue, and to this day, we'll still talk about Monica Lewinsky, right? It doesn't. The people who are with him were with him, and the people who were against him were against him. It's not like that somehow changed. You know, he was speaking to religious leaders. Do you think though that that's a different kind of? like thing to not be forgiven for than whether you used a private email server. I mean, that has like adultery, deep questions of morality that um, obviously are informed by a lot of people's religious beliefs. Whereas like people don't have the same sort of like moral rectitude that they're bringing to judging Hillary over her email. Well, I mean, but the same religious leaders are supporting Donald Trump who has written books about cheating on his spouses. So it's, you know, this is what I'm saying. Like they don't, if they want to forgive somebody who has, they're forgiving a person who's never apologized, who doesn't apologize and who said he doesn't need to ask for forgiveness because they want to. And they're looking past it. And when it's Bill Clinton, who has asked for forgiveness, who's actually said he sinned using the language of religion, they don't forgive him. So, you know, I think that there is a sort of, you know, there, there is a calculation to be made politically. It's not one I would make. I would just apologize. I, I, I don't get it. You know, if I was Hillary, I would just apologize mm-hmm. and move on. But I'm not obviously running for president. So I don't, I don't think the way politicians think in that way. I think that's a good point. Although I think in, in the great mix of Bill Clinton's rehabilitation and, um, and the fact that he still has a pretty high approval rating, I wonder if those people who uh weren't uh total opponents of clinton's but weren't quite sure what to think find that kind of apology that he gave appealing and that helps break the you know if he dug in whether he'd lose some of the favor he has now for that group of people who 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 didn't like what he did but but weren't Mm -hmm. you know adamantly against him I also wonder if, I mean, sure, Hillary's not going to win back a whole lot of people who are just, you know, bitterly and adamantly opposed to her. But aren't there some people for whom um, her inability to apologize, as John was saying, is off-putting in a way that, I mean, they're not unreachable, but it really makes them nervous about the idea of her being presidency. A president, I mean, I have to say, I wonder if we are watching the foreshadowing of what will be an incredibly frustrating flaw of her presidency if she really can't figure out how to say I'm sorry, how to express regret, how to admit that something dumb happened. 
But does this really set her apart from most politicians? I don't, you know, I, I guess I just tend to feel like this is the thing that everybody's focusing on. But if it wasn't this, it would be something else. I, I just, there, I can't think of any time since Hillary Clinton has entered into the public domain, the national, you know, conversation where there hasn't been something that she's doing that's making people angry. And I'm not like a, a huge Hillary Clinton supporter or anything like that. But but I do I do feel like if she apologized for it, then there would probably be an, another thing that people are talking about. And, um, you know, for me, her bigger character flaw is that she's secretive, you know, and paranoid. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and then but in terms of, of apologizing, I mean, how often do politicians actually apologize? It's It's something you almost I feel like we almost never see. And do we not even want them to apologize all that much? I mean, if they were constantly running around confessing error, we would find that destabilizing, right? Yeah, I think you want them to apologize, or sorry, you want them to have the internal capacity to recognize mistakes, uh, figure out what they did wrong, and move quickly beyond that. The uh, public admission of guilt or mistakes, they almost never do that. But But in private, you want them to fail quickly figure out why they failed, adapt, and move forward. That's what everybody has learned in business. It's what separates the uh, the excellent from the merely taking home a paycheck. And the capacity to do that is what everybody should go looking for when we don't see it in public. So do you think the fact that we're not seeing Hillary do that in public should make us nervous about what she's doing in private? Or do you think those are separate things? I think that's exactly the right question to ask and is really interesting. I think people, the Hillary supporters would say when she lost in in the healthcare fight, she immediately went back and took up the fight for children's health. Uh, and that that, re- you know, represents, some people would say it represents her, her grit. Other people would say it represents her learning that when she went to the Senate, she went through a period of learning that also represents a recognition of how to learn from your mistakes. So I think there's evidence in her career. The question is then, what's the evidence in Donald Trump's career that he does this? He is famously uh, said he doesn't admit mistakes uh, because he doesn't want to admit that anything was ever a setback. And therefore, there's not a lot of coverage of instances where he was, uh, we know he went when he was bankrupt and was, you know, there's that famous line where he said to his daughter, you know, pointed to the guy, the um, ho- homeless person on the street who said he was, you know, that person's worth more than I am right now. He's clearly had to come back from things, but he rarely talks about them. So we don't have much of a window. Yeah, that seems right. All right, let's wrap up that topic there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We wanted to talk about an article in The Atlantic by Caitlin Flanagan called How Helicopter Parenting Can Cause Binge Drinking. Those aren't two phenomenon that um, one necessarily directly connects all the time. But Flanagan's thesis essentially, um, she starts by looking back at her own adolescence in the 1970s, and she says, it was a different time. We didn't drink or do sex or have drugs in captivity. We did those things in the wild, away from our parents, in the danger and thrill of the dark, sacred night. And then she draws a contrast to kids today and this whole question of whether 
parents are promoting or at least allowing for the beginnings of binge drinking by allowing kids to drink socially at home. Some idea that you're like preparing your kids by exposing them to alcohol, which Flanagan sees as totally self-destructive. And she's also winding in here a critique about parents and and kids' intense, intense motivation to succeed in today's culture. There's a way in which she is envisioning kids as kind of like lined up on an assembly line where they're supposed to produce themselves as highly successful college applicants and college attendees and then going on trotting out from there into the work world. And she has this great line where she says, kids don't rebel against their parents anymore. Why would they? Why would you rebel against the concierge at the Hyatt? And then she says, okay, that leaves only the problem of the dark, sacred night. What to do about it? In other words, parents have some inkling or evidence that kids want to be out drinking and carousing. And then what do they do with that awareness? And her way of really judging all parents, but in particular, the kind of parents she sees as allowing for promoting drinking is to create these categories, the good parent and the get real parent. The good parent is telling their kids sternly and consistently not to drink. And the get real parent is trying to allow, um, give kids some room to grow, which Flanagan sees as dangerous. And I thought the most convincing thing maybe that she said was that this notion that practicing drinking at home, even getting drunk at home, was going to have anything to do with making kids safer when they actually binge drink was like a fantasy because those are really just two different things. And that binge drinking is alarming in a way that parents need to be making clear to their kids instead of, you know, tolerating it or uh, softening their message in any way. John, when you were thinking back on your own growing up, and um, and I guess if you feel like talking about it, your own parenting, does this contrast that Flanagan is drawing between the past and the present resonate for you? Yeah, uh, sort of. I went, my The first thing that struck me was that uh, how this felt like um, a worry of the 1%. This felt like a private school parent's you know, discussion group. Yes. Um, that was my first year. The other was, you know, the importance of boundaries is it, it helps them know, have clarity in life in a world where there is so much, I mean, one of the reasons people are binge drinking or that we did anyway, is that, I mean, in addition to the, the party, like sex and social and um, reason that people drink in high school, but there's a lot of confusion in high school and a lot of identity confusion that goes on. And so when you drink, you it lowers inhibitions, it makes you just kind of forget all of that. So I think all those things are all all still exist. And I guess I just wonder, I guess this is I'm right before this with my kids. So I can see how this would be a possible problem. But I don't, as parents, maybe we're the um, what are the two groups again, we're the not get You're real the good parents. parents and not so the get real parents. I feel like this isn't really like a big debate. And it does bad things to your brain. And I did a lot of really stupid things when I was behaving like that. And that all of those lessons are incredibly important to convey. Um, and that that's the most important thing. Kirsten, what about you? What was your reaction to this piece? Well, yeah, I, I think that I didn't feel it that she necessarily established an other than sort of anecdotally that these parents were behaving this way. And maybe there's no other way to establish it, but it, I would have... She's not big on evidence, really, in this essay. Yeah, I, I would have liked to have at least maybe some examples. So for one, one part where she talks about the get real parents, and she says, 
the real question about these parents, many of whom pay for their kids' alcohol, revel in their stories about the shit show, delight in emails from campus highlighting the new services for the plastered, such as golf cart rides back to the dorm by helpful safety officers, is this. Why have they so cheerfully handed over their children to this ugly and worthless experience? And I just thought, who, who are these people? Because she's mm-hmm. talking about the the one percent, right? So these are the right. these are the helicopter parents who want their kids to get you know minimum of straight A's, who want them to be on the sports team, who want them to go to Princeton, who want them to you know have their whole life planned, and then somehow just in this one little area, they want their kids puking on the lawn. It doesn't really make sense. And so I just and she and she brought this up at other points in the article, and I just thought. I just need a little more information about these people because it doesn't fit with the profile of the people that we're talking about. Yeah, she creates a stalking horse. I mean, I, and and it did seem totally like a cartoon character to me. What keeps striking me as my kids, my kids are now 13 and 16, as they reach this age is I feel like we've lost the blind eye. I got a lot of mileage in high school out of the fact that my parents just weren't totally paying attention all the <laughs> yeah. time. And I'm not, I agree with, with you, John, that there are real dangers here. And I think that's what's so confounding about this. But I also think it's really important for teenagers to have some area of their life that their parents don't necessarily know every detail of. And that just seems like a vanishing possibility to me. I feel like we do inspect and expect to know about almost everything kids are doing. And in contrast to this um, portrayal of these get real parents, like throwing vodka at their children, my experience of my kids' high school is that there is so zero tolerance for drinking that there essentially couldn't be a party after the prom because no parent would ever want to take on the liability of having a whole lot of kids milling around unsupervised. The high school just made entirely clear that that was utterly unacceptable. Now, I mean, this is a private school, so we are in the world of the like one or two or three percent, but it was striking to me. I don't remember growing up outside of the actual event venue of the prom getting a lot of um, messages about what kids were or weren't supposed to be doing. It's as if parental and official authority like extends everywhere. Actually, you know, as you were talking, I'm I'm realizing maybe I was totally wrong about the the 1%. Let me see if I can totally reverse view. Because as I was thinking about parents who don't, who's, um, who have public school kids, the resistance to be the like fuddy-duddy parent, it, it will make your kids resent you. And also the get along, go along um, may actually n- not be that, that I wonder if there's like a class thing so that it's the, it's the, the 1% private school schools that are like you described, Emily, who are obsessed with drinking and teach the kids when they're in seventh grade about what it does to their brain development and all of that. And it's the rest of America where the, you know, there's a, there's more of this kind of, oh, let, you know, they went up to the, we're all at the, the, you know, the lake for the afternoon or for the, you know, evening and, oh, they can, you know, get hammered and, and have fun. And um, so maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's outside the 1% that this is actually, that there's more of this tolerance and sort of like, oh, hey, remember when we used to do that? And isn't that a rite of passage? And, you know, kids will be kids. Uh, that, that causes some of the tension she writes about. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's hard for me to tease out the class issues. I mean, there's so many different cultural and social forces that go into how parents are dealing with these questions. Um, 
I mean, Kirsten, you're the one among us, I think, who does not have children. Mm-hmm. Does this make you feel like um, you dodged a bullet and it's nice <laughs> to have, not have to deal with this? Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, to me, it makes me feel at a little bit of a disadvantage because, like I said, when I was reading it, I was like, wow, I have a lot of friends with kids and I have nieces. I mean, my nieces are still little, but I mean, I definitely am ha- around people with children and I just, how did I not know this was a thing, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, she actually, I feel like she is making the argument that it is more of a 1% problem. I mean, she's, she's laying this at the feet of privileged parents, um, basically saying that this is how they're raising their kids. And then they go off to college. And then, you know, other kids, including less privileged children, watch this behavior. Um, so, you know, I guess I just felt like when I read it, as so often when I read a Caitlin Flanagan piece, it, sort of ended up in the same place and you get to the end and she she after she's made a lot of different theories she blames it on and I'm reading from this the increasing abandonment of religion the untethering of sexuality not just from relationships but from kindness um, she talks about uh, the problem of understanding of eventual parenthood as something that will be subordinated to the management of two successful careers. So it's just sort of a grab bag of her usual grievances right, with society. Which include essentially like working women. Yeah, exactly. And then some, <laughs> so I got to the end. And I was like, oh, of course, working women are responsible for this. You know, it's it, it all sort of ends up in the same place. And I just didn't feel like maybe that's true, I guess. But it, I didn't feel like this article established uh, that fact. Yes, I think that's fair. I mean, one of the reasons she's such a provocative essayist is that she's willing to kind of go out on these limbs and saw part of it off. And then we are tempted to saw the rest of it off behind her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, Emily, there's another point where she also talks about blowing off steam. I mean, do you think that that's potentially something that these kids are under so much pressure that come the weekend that they just want to let it all go? That is something I hear sometimes from Yale undergraduates, or at least this idea that being an A student um, is like the mirror half of being someone who goes out and parties, that you're supposed to like excel or um, drive yourself to excess in both domains. So it's, I don't know, actually, sometimes the kids here don't talk about it really as a release, although it must have some of that for them. It's also this notion of like almost one more box they have to check, which is maybe like the most depressing idea of all. Hmm. All right. That is really a dark note to end on. And yet, <laughs> I think I'm just going to end things there. Let's end it on a dark night of the soul. <laughs> all right. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply but only if we can go to cocktail chatter um john i hope you are going to actually make it home from san francisco and have a nice drink for yourself sometime over this weekend if if that were to happen if you were to have a moment to quietly take a breath what would you want to be chattering about and we, we should at least just check the box and note the um the irony of going from a discussion about binge drinking to, I guess, what responsible <laughs> yes, drinking? Yes, responsible, um, moderate so, drinking. Uh, totally different I'm, phenomena. This is um, uh, something that will no doubt become a whistle stop podcast when I can get around to it. But when uh, 
Michael Bloomberg suggested at the Democratic convention that that Donald Trump was insane. I went back and was sort of looking at where that specific claim had been made about previous presidential candidates. And I was reminded of what's known as the Goldwater rule. That is based on a volume of a magazine was called Fact Magazine uh, in 1964. Fact Magazine did not stick around for very long in life, but in 1964, Volume 1, Issue 5, for sale at $1.25, had this on the title, on the, sorry, on the, on the front cover of the magazine. 1,189 psychiatrists say Goldwater is psychologically unfit to be president, exclamation point. And then as you open the magazine, uh, here from sept- the September to October 1964 uh, issue, it says, Goldwater, the man and the menace, that the senator is divorced from reality is unfortunate. That he may soon be able to divorce all of us from reality <laughs> is terrifying. It then went on to interview all of these psychiatrists, which who all had cockamamie theories, by which I mean just made up from what they read in the papers, about why Goldwater was unfit to be president, including one who cited the fact that his mother was Jewish and his father was a Protestant and that this created unfulfilled tensions in his life and on and on. Anyway, it's hysterical and I'll make it into a whistle stop, but I had to to mention it now because um, who knows when I'll get around to doing that and it's in the middle of the in the campaign right now. And what happened as a result of this is that the American Psychiatric Association pass the Goldwater rule, or not pass the Goldwater rule, it's an informal standard, but it's a medical ethics rule that says basically no psychiatrist is allowed to, if they're asked their opinion, is allowed to weigh in on the fitness of a presidential candidate. Uh, There was also a libel suit, which I won't talk about, but Goldwater sued the magazine for libel. Anyway, if you hear a psychiatrist weighing in on a candidate's mental fitness, you should uh, you know, make a citizen's arrest and the Goldwater rule will be your foundation for your What if you're uh, just like having a nice friendly drink with said psychiatrist? <laughs> you're still supposed to turn them in. Yeah, because they wouldn't diagnose from the bench about anybody else. Or maybe they would, in which case, what does that say about them? Okay, judging psychiatrists <laughs> everywhere. Kirsten, what will you be chattering about this weekend? Just to be clear, though, wasn't this supposed to be like a relaxing drink? Is this what John does when he relaxes? Yeah, John's idea of relaxation has lots of like very detailed, intricate historical detail yeah. contained within it. Because mine is going to be a a real. Kier- Kirsten has Kirsten has put her finger on why yeah, I drink alone. Because yeah. I personally, I've been on the road pretty much nonstop this whole year. As I think John has too, so he should want to be just doing nothing. Um, so I will Never. not be chattering about anything. I would just be watching Veep on Netflix. How come? Because I just want to relax. I don't want to think about anything. I don't want to work. I don't want to talk about anything important. I just want to just kind of disconnect. And yet Veep is all about politics. I know, but it's funny. It is funny. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Donald Trump is going to be a character on Veep next season. Probably. Probably. (sighs) All right. Um, My chatter 
equally, if not more nerdy than John's, is about my favorite prank of the week. Um, the director of the Public Defender Services of Missouri essentially called out Governor Jay Nixon this week for the um, real funding crisis that um, public defense for indigent criminal defendants has been going through in Missouri. And what this guy, uh, Michael Barrett, did was to order Governor Nixon to report to court to represent an indigent criminal defendant. Um, he said he was using his powers to make these appointments to um, require the governor to show up. And obviously this isn't going to happen, but I think it was actually quite a clever way of calling attention to a crisis, which is not just going on in Missouri. We've had a season of real terrible um, funding problems for public defense also in New Orleans. And it's just a chronic issue because this isn't necessarily something that lots of voters jump up and down and clamor for. And yet it's just an essential piece of our criminal defense system. So so I enjoyed this prank. Go Michael Barrett. He got lots of attention for this problem. And Governor Nixon, who is a Democrat, should go and do something about this funding crisis and take this seriously. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining yeah, us this thanks week. For having We're really me. grateful that you came. Yeah, it was fun. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, Kirsten. And John, thanks for being with us all the way out there in San Francisco, where you feel like you're on a different planet. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The Slate Political Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash GabFest. You can look at our Twitter feed at SlateGabFest for updates, and our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes and leave a comment and a rating while you're there. For Kirsten Powers and John Dickerson, I'm David. (laughs) Yes, leave that in. Um, Now you know what it's like to read the teleprompter. For Kirsten Powers and John Dickerson, I'm Emily Bazelon. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be with you next week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. 
on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 